If you happen to bring your Bible with you, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Thank you, Frank and Eunice and Keith and Kit, all of you. Thank you so much for being here. I want to thank all of those who are here today helping and facilitating this regathering together here early and setting up. I'm so grateful for each of you. And welcome back, every one of you that are here who braved it today. <laughs> How many of you know this isn't going to be like flicking a switch? Um, it's going to take time for us to emerge again and adjust and, uh, and transition. And so it's so good to see all of your beautiful faces and to be seen by your beautiful faces. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look at, this was the passage, in fact, that was read earlier uh, by our uh, indigenous pastor, and um, it, that, incidentally, that was not planned. I, uh, I had previewed this video, and then as we were watching it here again this morning, it, I realized that this is our text this morning, and there's no, uh, there's no coincidence with that, but that was not planned by me that way. So uh, if you have it open in front of you, uh, look at Paul's words to the Corinthians together with me, beginning in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. From this moment on, therefore... We don't regard anybody from merely a human point of view. Even if we once regarded the Messiah that way, we don't do so any longer. Thus, if anyone is in the Messiah, there is a new creation. Old things have gone. And look, everything has become new. It all comes from God. He reconciled us to himself through the Messiah, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is how it came about. God was reconciling the world to himself in the Messiah, not counting their transgressions against them, and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors then, speaking on behalf of the Messiah, as though God were speaking through us, making his appeal through us. We implore people on the Messiah's behalf to be reconciled to God. The Messiah did not know sin, but God made him to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might embody God's faithfulness to the covenant. We've been looking at, if you've been tracking with us online and following our video messages each week, you know that we've been looking at uh, this whole idea of the substitution of Christ, uh, the idea of one giving and laying down their life for another, and how that has always been something throughout human history that has fascinated us, that mystifies us still to this day does, and 
how that, as it is expressed in Christ and in Christ's substitution, and what in in terms that maybe some of us have heard and others may not have heard, in theological terms is called the substitutionary work of Christ, that theology of substitutionary atonement. We've been looking at that in the scriptures, particularly we've been looking at the servant passages in the book of Isaiah. And then in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at together what Paul has to say in his writings about all of this, this whole concept of the substitutionary work of Christ. So here in our passage this morning, open before us, we see this again referenced in Paul's words, and as Paul unfolds this throughout all of his writing. So we've read this, and okay, he hasn't counted their trespasses against the world. He has given Messiah in their place. Okay, so what's the result then? What does that mean for you and me, for us, for our world today? And this is the quest that we have been on together, studying the atoning work of Christ Messiah uh, from these various passages of Isaiah, Isaiah 52 to 55, and now here in the writing of St. Paul. I haven't provided you with an outline for note-taking today, but there are slides, and you may wish to take your own notes just so that you can uh, dig into this further later on if you so choose, and I encourage that. What is Paul saying now about all of this in his writing? Here in our passage this morning, the, the, the second half of verse 21 is usually translated in most of our Bibles uh, something like this, so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you have it open before you, you can look at the second half of that verse and so that we might become the righteousness of God. And when we hear this, and when we look at it, it sounds and looks a lot like what has been passed on to us from the 16th century Reformation idea. Martin Luther, Calvin, all of these guys who began to bring understanding to us about the the righteousness of God somehow being reckoned to us or imputed to us or credited to us as believers. The righteousness of Christ made ours. And, and that is very much a part of Christ's substitutionary atoning work. But here's the interesting thing. That is not the point that Paul is making here in this passage. He's not underscoring that aspect, as important as it is, Paul's point is different. If you look back to chapters 3 to 6 in 2 Corinthians, the chapters uh, previous to chapter 5 and then the chapter following chapter 5, and look at the greater context of what Paul is dealing with here, he's discussing the nature of of his apostleship. 
The Corinthians, you see, here's what's been going on. The Corinthians have been questioning Paul's credibility, his authority as an apostle of Christ Jesus. They were doubting whether they could really respect him, suffering jailbird that he was. He was writing from prison. So, in chapter 3 of his letter here in 2 Corinthians, Paul explains that his apostleship is all about the new covenant. And you can look at it for yourselves later on. Please do. It's all about the new covenant promised in, in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. And then here in our passage at hand today, open in front of us now, in chapter 5, verse 17, he declares climactically, this is the climax now of everything he's been saying in these preceding chapters, if anyone is in Messiah, new creation. There you have it. This is what Paul is seeking to bring out. This is what he's seeking to underscore and emphasize to us. New covenant, new creation, and the apostolic ministry of Paul being God's instrument in bringing them about, just as it is now our apostolic ministry and calling. And then, guess what? Paul immediately, in chapter 6 now, in verse 2, and again, look at it for yourselves, he quotes, watch this, he quotes, interestingly, of all passages, he quotes one of the servant songs in Isaiah, which we have already looked at together in previous weeks. Thus, the second half of chapter 5 and verse 21 here this morning Declaring the result of the sinless Jesus being made sin for us. This has everything to do with the apostolic ministry as embodying, putting flesh on God's faithfulness to the covenant and to creation itself. In other words, King Jesus' substitutionary death on our behalf is not just to rescue sinners from something. It is to rescue us for something. God rescues and redeems and renews humankind through the death of Jesus in their place, so that they may be His partners together in the rescue, redemption, and renewal of the world. So as I'm sure you can see, this is a very, very different message to what has usually been taught to what most of us are familiar with, to what many of us have come to accept. The normal story, the truth story, the one that some people swear by and other people perhaps under their breath sometimes swear at, is about an angry, wrathful God needing to get His vengeful indignation off His chest. To be in that sense satisfied. 
However, that is not at all what Paul is talking about here. Now, look with me at Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, another one of Paul's letters. What about, what about what he says there? This was Corinthians. What about Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13? You can turn there if you like. I'll give us the gist of it, but please do look at it for yourself. In Galatians 3 verse 13, the Messiah, Paul says, became a curse for us. Here's how it goes. The law-observant people are under the law's curse because they don't keep it. And Deuteronomy says that anyone hanged on a tree is accursed. Therefore, Jesus on the cross became a curse for us. But again, I ask, what was the result of that? For many of us, preachers included, you'd think that Paul would conclude with these words, so that we might be freed from the guilt penalty and power of sin and go to heaven rather than hell. However, Paul doesn't say that. What Paul actually says is that the Messiah became a curse for us. Look at this in verse 14 of Galatians chapter 3. So that the blessing of Abraham could flow through to the nations in King Jesus, and so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, what kind of atonement theology is that? Throughout Galatians 3, Paul is expounding God's covenant promise to give Abraham a multi-ethnic family. And the law looked as if it would stand in the way of that happening since Abraham's own family were under the curse. However, the Messiah has come to that very point, Paul is saying, and has taken that curse upon himself. Now, because of that, covenant renewal can proceed unchecked, unhindered. And, again, exactly as in Isaiah 53, this leads to the great promise of new creation. Symbolized first in Gentile inclusion. As in Galatians 6, verse 15. Circumcision, Paul says, circumcision, you see, is nothing. Neither is uncircumcision. What matters, Paul says, is new creation. So again, we see Galatians, Paul's writing there, isn't about how sinners go to heaven. It's about how God, through Messiah, creates a new single Jew plus Gentile family, God's new Israel, and how that new united humanity forms the signpost prophetically pointing to God's redemptive creation renewing purposes. And, and this too is the primary point in the famous passage where Paul declares in Galatians 2.20, and many of you would be familiar with this and perhaps have committed it to memory, I have been crucified with Messiah. 
I am, however, alive. But it isn't me any longer. It's Messiah who lives in me, Paul says. And the life I do still live in the flesh, I live within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul recalls his opening statement in chapter 1 of Galatians, verses 3 and 4. Jesus the Messiah, our Lord, who gave Himself for our sins, not so that we could escape hell and go to heaven, but in order to rescue us from the present evil age. Jesus' death in the sinner's place means sinners, Jewish and Gentile alike, can now be full, free members of the one people of God. Again, Paul's vision of Messiah giving Himself for our sins is aimed at the ultimate new creation for which the Jew plus Gentile church is a kind of pilot project. Okay, okay, so what about Romans then? Surely, uh, in Romans, that's where Paul spells out substitutionary atonement as we understand it. Well, yes, he does, but again, the overall context, the full argument of Romans, and as you, if you know anything about Romans, it's an, it's an incredible letter, freighted with so much for us. The full argument of Romans itself is what really matters, and we must look at the greater picture. And obviously, we have no time this morning in this format for more than just a quick glance. And so here's three things that I want to to underscore for us, all right, about Romans. First, notice that the great climaxes in Romans, and you can look at this for yourself later on, uh, dig into this on your own. I, I, I encourage you to do that. Notice that the great climaxes in Paul's letter to the Romans are all about new creation. Notice that. In chapter 8, the ultimate promise is not that we will leave this world and go to heaven, but that God will rescue creation itself from its slavery to decay in a great act of new creation. And that redeemed image-bearing humans, just like in the book of Revelation, will participate and will play a crucial role in that. A partnership with God in it. In chapter 11 of Romans, God's purposes for Jew and Gentile alike leads to the praise of God, the wise Creator. The final climax in chapter 15, verses 7 to 13, focuses again, surprise, surprise, on Isaiah. Isaiah 11. The promise of creation renewed and restored. If you look at Isaiah 11, that's what is being dealt with there. The promise of creation being renewed and restored. For this, the corporate worship of the multi-ethnic people of God, which depends on the mutual welcome with respect and consideration that Paul insists upon in chapters 14 and 15. 
That is the advance sign of ultimate new creation. So, this whole work of Christ, atonement, theology, found in Romans, is like Isaiah, again, focused on the renewal of the covenant and then the creation. Interesting. Looking at these climactic conclusions tells us what the letter is all about. So if you just look at those high points in Romans, that's what you see. Here's the second thing I want to underscore about Romans for us. Romans chapters 1 to 4 does indeed sketch a law court scene. It gives us a picture of a law court. All humankind are convicted of sin, and God then deals with it. However, this is all about the unveiling of God's righteousness, which refers not to the righteous status which people have through God's justifying action, but it refers to God's own righteousness, His covenant faithfulness that Paul says, I live in now. I've died to myself. It's no longer me that lives. It's Christ that lives in me. And the life I do live in the flesh, he says, I live within God's faithfulness. The crucial passage in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 26, so often read in terms of propitiation, that is, in terms of the death of Jesus pacifying or satisfying God's anger. It's often read that way. But it is in fact actually evoking the temple. If you study that passage closely, you're going to find a lot of temple language going on there. Why is that? Because again, Paul is pointing to new creation and how God is in the process of working towards creating a new creation temple in which he can dwell with his people and we can enjoy his presence together and working in partnership with him. Temple language, isn't that interesting? That's what you find in Genesis as well, interestingly enough. The creation story, you know, we're always trying to figure out, was it seven days? Was it an actually 20, actual 24 days? Da, da, da. Was it you know, all this stuff? When that's not what Genesis is really about at all. Genesis is about God creating a temple. Temple language. The word that is often translated here in Romans, propitiation, really refers to the mercy seat. The mercy seat, well, where was that? Well, again, it was in the temple. The mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The place where God promised to what? Where he promised to meet with his people. Within the tabernacle or temple, the sacrificial blood was the purifying agent, cleaning the shrine from all human pollution so that God could come and dwell with his people. I know, I know, I know. This is dense stuff. 
And this passage in Paul, Romans is a, is a dense letter. It's, it's thick. It's, it's hard to plow through. But as disciples of Jesus, we must give ourselves to this. It's tightly written. But here's what I'm trying to help us do. When we, when we read this within the larger context, when we read Romans within the bigger picture, the context of chapters 1 to 4 as a whole, it too is about the death of Jesus as a means by which the covenant could be fulfilled after all. So that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the whole world. That's you and me. That's all the people groups of this world. So again, as in Isaiah, no surprises that Paul alludes to Isaiah. The servant's death means new covenant and therefore new creation. And here's the third thing I want to leave with you about Romans, since we're trying to look at the big scheme here. The clearest substitutionary passage in Paul's letter to the Romans is chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. And, and we know this, don't we? So therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Messiah Jesus. Yeah? We know that, that phrase, don't we? Quite well, most of us. Well, why not? Why is there no condemnation? Because, Paul writes, God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering. And right there in the flesh, He condemned sin. So for avo avoidance of all doubt here, this is definitely penal. In other words, it has to do with punishment. Punishment for sin. There is no condemnation because God condemned sin. He punished sin in the flesh of Jesus. And it's definitely substitutionary. Sin has been condemned in the death of the representative Messiah so that there is no condemnation for those who are in Him. If you are in Him, there is no condemnation. He has represented you in the punishment of sin. Even so, I want you to notice two things here quickly. Notice first that Paul doesn't say God condemned Jesus. A lot of people have trouble with this whole substitutionary idea because they say, how can a loving father punish their own son? How can that be? Well, notice Paul doesn't say that. It, he doesn't say God condemned or punished Jesus. He says that God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. That may not seem like much of a distinction, but actually, it's huge. And we can easily miss it, and we do. And here's the second thing. Here, as in Galatians 3, the outcome, again, is not so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven. Heaven isn't even mentioned in Romans 8. 
so that humans can be remade by the Holy Spirit. That is what is mentioned. That we can be remade by the Holy Spirit, made new ahead of our ultimate remaking at the resurrection. And as in Revelation, we can play our parts in new creation. As we grieve and as we mourn the passing of loved ones, such as Carol McDougall, even as recently as this past week, we understand that she has entered into her rest. We don't understand what that rest looks like or consists of. The Bible doesn't give us a lot there. We just know that she has entered her rest and that that means somehow right now, as Paul does say, when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord immediately. Somehow she is present with the Lord and she is enjoying the rest that we are all meant to know in His presence. It's a beautiful thing. But we also know that Carol as for all of us who are in Christ, we have resurrection to look forward to. And we will arise again just as Jesus led the way for us. And we will arise and we will be remade. Our bodies will be remade by the Holy Spirit ahead of their ultimate remaking which occurs at the resurrection. This is, it's, it's an incredible idea for us to try to get our understanding around. But it's all a part of the new creation that Paul is talking about here. Loved ones, we need a new narrative framework as disciples of Jesus. We need a new way to understand the story. We need to understand the story the way the Bible actually lays it out for us. Not what we have come to inherit down through the uh, centuries of things that have just become our own traditions. There's a need for a new narrative. A new and proper understanding of the story. And again, this has been dense, I admit, but I want you to know I don't apologize. Because if we're going to think and if we're going to live wisely the passion of the cross in these days of darkness, we need to take time to give the Bible the careful, thoughtful, prayerful, contemplative, close reading that the Bible demands. Yeah? This is, this is not just a fluffy devotional book to give us warm fuzzies on a bad rainy day. We are called to be students of the Word as disciples of the living Word. And the Bible itself demands this of us. What seems to have happened through our Western world theology over the last few hundred years is that a particular interpretation of the cross, a narrative, a, a way of telling the story that has been driven by fear and shaming about humans heading for hell and God punishing Jesus instead of them, 
that, that's, that way of telling the story has systematically pulled and twisted the early Christian preaching, which was compelled by love and compelled by hope. It's pulled it all out of shape and distorted it. That way of proclaiming the Gospel would have been so foreign to the understanding of the early followers of Jesus. They would not have understood how we were proclaiming it that way. And then in approaching the reading of the Gospel accounts of Jesus and His death, they, they also have been seen through this, con, this controlling lens. This lens of, of this controlling story. And this is hard since the Gospels themselves don't put it like that at all. They don't put it like that angry, vengeful God that's wrathful waiting to take a load off His chest on humankind because He's so ticked off. No, He took care of all of that already in the flesh of Jesus. So as our world lurches this way and that with political and historical and social as well as medical crises like this one that we have uh, been going through and, 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 and God willing are seeing the end or, uh, of the, this tunnel as we transition into a a new and strange world and a new day. As the world lurches in these ways, it is all the more vital that there come a shift in our perspective about discerning the story, the good news story, which the early Christians were actually telling about the cross. We have already considered the fact that the early Christians saw the death of Jesus first in terms of God coming to dwell in our midst, to meet us at the very point where our hopes and dreams have all collapsed. We've looked at that in weeks past, online together. And then second, how the early Christians saw all of this in terms of God winning the victory against all the dark forces that have attacked His good creation. God's desired objective throughout was and is, always has been to create a people in whose midst He could come to dwell, who would be agents of His purpose together of new creation. Hallelujah.